Well, good afternoon, church. Afternoon. Uh, we uh, come today to the book of Acts, and if you remember, it was within the book of Acts in Acts chapter 14 that we learned of the importance of those missionary updates which we've just had. Really, it was what Paul and Barnabas would do is they would uh, return from their missionary trips. They would go and tell the church that had sent them out all that they were doing in order that they would be able to have a more fruitful fellowship together, and so we thank John for coming to do that. But today, we're going to be turning to Acts chapter 20, uh, moving into a new passage, which really, upon the first reading of it, seems to be a rather insignificant text. Uh, you read through it and you say, well, there's really not a whole lot of doctrine in here. There's not really a lot of exhortation in here. And so what is it that the Lord is communicating to us in His Word here? There's really just a, a minimal amount of instruction here that we can read, at least upon the surface reading of this text. But we know that this cannot be simply true because all of God's Word is breathed out uh, by Him and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and the training up in righteousness. And so rather than us, as we read this here today, just doing sort of a cursory read of it where you just read it, move past it, and go into the next passage, rather we're going to consider it in the way in which God would have for us to consider it. As it is His Word, we know that there are spiritual benefits in which can be applied from it. As we read here in Acts chapter 20, verse 1 to 6 today, though really what is on the surface is just a travel itinerary of what Paul is doing. In fact, going into verse 16, it just kind of captures Paul's travel itinerary before he makes his way uh, into Jerusalem. Uh, but in that, we know that it's much more than that because of what God's Word has promised to us, that it will instruct us and train us up in righteousness. Today in this uh, passage, as you'll know from the um, bulletin, if you've read it, that the title suggests that there is a, a really a, a very important uh, teaching that comes from this passage here today, and that is the teaching on what it looks like to love the body of Christ. You know, rather than just reading it and saying, oh, this is just a travel itinerary, what we see here really is Paul's love for the church on full display as we see him not merely just engaging with doing stuff, but rather we see his primary motivation flowing out from his life being that because Christ died for the church and because Paul loved his Savior, he also would love his Savior's church. And so again, Acts chapter 20 is where we are today with that introduction. We'll read through verse 1 to verse 6 and consider just this beautiful passage here now. It says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Potter the Berean and son of Phyrus accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for, for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that we have to come and to consider your word. God, we thank you for the instruction in which is before us here today, where we can imitate Christ as he himself imitates you, Jesus. Lord, we know that you love your church we know that you love your church so very much that you died for us in order that we would be able to be reconciled unto you, God. And so I ask as we see this example of Paul here today and his great love being shown for the church that, that the example of Paul would also be within our lives as we also seek to grow uh, in Christ-likeness um, basically as, as we love the church, Lord, just as you have loved your own. Uh, may you guide us today through this study, Lord, that we would be able to be edified, equipped, and, and uh, thoroughly nourished by your word in order that we would be able to continue through this life until you call us to yourself. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Now, how does a believer grow in Christ-likeness? You say, well, what is Christ-likeness? Christ-likeness really in its basic uh, meaning is to simply be one who is growing in holiness. As Christ is holy, one who is growing in Christ-likeness is also going to be growing in holiness. It is to be holy as Christ is holy. To be one who is Christ-like would be one who is not merely submitted to Christ and His will, but to have our will be in line with His own. It's not that Christ has to tell us this is what you need to do, but rather we are so in tune with the mind of Christ and the will of God that He would have for us to be doing in our lives that we would not need to say, what would Jesus do? But rather the outpouring activity of our lives would be Christ-like. We would be holy as He Himself is holy. You say, how does a believer grow in Christ-likeness? Well, this is a vital truth which we must consider given the dominant teaching throughout the Scriptures concerning this, especially in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, where Paul writes, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It is God's will that we will be conformed to the image of his Son, namely that we would be Christ-like in our lives. God has not saved us in order that we would live to ourselves. He has not saved us in order that we would be able to glorify in ourselves or glorify our own lives among men, but rather He has saved us in order that we would be conformed to the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be Christ-like. You say, God will conform me to the image of His Son, but how is this going to take place? Is it going to be some sort of a mystical working where God just somehow or some way shapes us into the image of His Son where He says, you are Christ-like, there it is, you can be Christ-like in your life. Be holy as my Son, Jesus Christ, is holy. Does God just say, you know, abracadabra, alakazam, you are now like my Son, Jesus Christ? That'd be wonderful if this was the case, but it is not this easy. Rather, it is the daily working in and through our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit that God leads us to Christ-likeness. You see, while Paul can say quite descriptively in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that God sovereignly has declared that we will be conformed to the image of His Son, as we have seen in our study on the providential working of God, that this does not limit man's responsibility in living this out. You see, just as we saw in Providence last week in our Bible study on the position that we must take concerning God and the evil within, that is within this world, is that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are not divorced from one another, but rather they each exist, not in opposition to one another, yet still separate in their functionality. And while this is a mystery to us, this is an ever-present reality to God whose will and ways we must humbly surrender to lest we find ourselves fighting against God. And so God is going to bring about Christ-likeness in us. But this does not mean that we are to just sit back and allow for God to do His work. That's not the way that God has intended for this to come about. You see, within our growth in Christ-likeness, we might not think of it as a totally work of God where we are just, you know, kind of twiddling our thumbs waiting for God to bring it about in us, but rather we must understand that because God is at work in us, we also are going to work. We are not the ones that are producing it, but rather because God by His Spirit is actively convicting us of our sins and producing within us righteousness through His Word and and through our obedience to His Word, we have a responsibility to grow in Christ's likeness. As Paul will say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
You see, in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the verse we read, Paul can say, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He can also give practical application to this theological truth that God will make us Christ-like. He can give practical application to this truth in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, there is a lot that one can say about Christ's likeness, but the reason that I bring it, for, bring it up for us now is because we see today from the life of Paul a characteristic of Christ's likeness that should exude from our lives as well. You say, how do I grow in Christ's likeness? Well, what does Christ's likeness look like? As is implied from the title of this passage here today, Christ's likeness in one of its respects is a love for the church. You say, if I want to be like Christ, I must love those who Christ himself has loved. And we see from the example of Paul today that Paul is growing in his Christ likeness where he is loving Christ's church. You see, Christ loves the church. There is no doubt about it. Any of us who are here today who are of Christ's church know that Christ loves us dearly. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27 says, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, Christ loved us so much, his church, that he gave himself up for us in order that we would be able to be presented to God in glorious splendor, that we would be reconciled to our Creator. Christ loves the church. And we know that Christ loves the church because the Spirit has made this known to us. In a hymn on our hymnals on page 748, we read this verse of this song, and I've never heard the song sung before, but I thought this verse was just so powerful. I figured I'd share it with you. We read of the great power of Christ's love for His church in these words. It says, loved with everlasting love, Led by grace that love to know. Gracious Spirit from above, Thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace. Oh, this transport all divine. In a love which cannot cease, I am His and He is mine. First John 4 verse 10 tells us, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, Jesus loves the church. And it's as simple for us to know from the songs that we would sing in Sunday school if we were a part of that. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now then, what follows from this, in that Christ loves His church, and in that God is conforming His church to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, what follows is that the church will have a love for one another. The church will love its Savior, Jesus Christ, but the church will also love the church in which Christ bought with His own blood. 1 John 4, 11 to 12 declares that quite clearly. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. You see, if we wish to be like Christ, love for His church must be a characteristic of our lives. And love for the church is not shown in the building. It's not shown in the organization. It's not shown in order that we would be able to be, have a career which is puffed up before others, but rather love for the church is expressed to the people. It is expressed to you and I, a mutual love that I have for you and you have for myself and so on and so forth. It is a love for the people of God, not the building, 
You know, the building can be destroyed. Not the, uh, the organization. Churches are closing all of the time. It is a love that is expressed for the people of God in that if everything else was lost, our love for one another would still be sweet because we are together, being bought together by the, brought together by the one Spirit who Jesus Christ has sent on our behalf. Now, as I have suggested, this is not a progress which we can carry about on our own. We're not going to love the church. We have the, the, the early stages of the development of the church, which we have been considering all the way back from Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, but you shall be my witnesses, and you will take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and I'm going to send my Spirit upon you, and He will give you the power to be able to be my witnesses. He will give you the power to be able to make myself known throughout the ends of the earth. And so we should expect that as we look through the book of Acts, that as the Spirit of God is at work in the life of the believers there throughout the ends of the earth, we should expect that they should be exuding some Christ-like qualities along the way. You know, Acts is a book that shows to us the dominant movement of the church from a small sect in Jerusalem unto the ends of the earth, overtaking the entire Roman Empire with its message. But still also within that, we have these passages which take somewhat of a break from the expansion of the church to just simply show the church at work amongst one another, to show how the church was operating with one another. In Acts 2, we saw the church was meeting daily for the teaching, for the breaking of bread, for the prayers, and for the fellowship. The church was united with one another. The church was loving one another. And here in this passage today, what we have for us is another example of how the church shows its love towards one another. It is within this passage here today that as we should expect to see in the book of Acts that there would be Christ-likeness exuding from the lives of these believers, that it is the case that from the example of the Apostle Paul and how he was engaging with the churches all throughout the Roman Empire, that this motivation behind his engagement with them was for the reason that he loved them. You see, again, on the surface, it would appear that we are merely reading about the travel itinerary of Paul and his companions. You know, he goes to Macedonia, and then he goes to Greece, and, and then he goes uh, to Troas, and, and he's got some other brothers with him there, and they're just going about doing their work, and, and it just seems so insignificant. But when you look at the motivation behind what Paul is doing here, knowing that as we allow for Scripture to interpret Scripture, we will see Paul's love for his brothers and sisters here just exuding from his lives. And this is going to be shown to us in three ways. Three ways in which I see from the Apostle Paul's life as he is living out his life to the glory of God and as he calls for us to imitate him as he himself imitates Christ, there are three characteristics of his love for the body of Christ that we see dominantly here on display. And the first is shown to us in Acts chapter 20, verse 1. Acts chapter 20, verse 1 says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. You see, what is Paul doing here to show his love for the brothers? Well, it is the love of embrace. Now, in the text here, it just simply says that Paul encouraged them, and then he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. But the Greek word here is aspatsomai, and it is a word which means to draw someone to your side. 
It's a, it's a verb which, which, which describes the Apostle Paul in his encouragement for them. He's encouraging them, as the text says here in the ESV. No doubt he's encouraging him, but it's too general of a term. It's too, it's too uh, general. It can be, oh, well, how is he encouraging him? Well, the Greek here is at spatsomai, and it simply means to draw someone to yourself in, in giving a greeting or to say farewell to them. I believe the King James has it well as it translates here. It says, After the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. You see, it was the love of embrace that Paul shows to his brothers and sisters here. And you say, why would he embrace him here in this moment? Why would he comfort them with a hug? Why would he drag them to his side? Why would he call them to his side before he leaves? Why is he taking the time to bring the brothers and the sisters to him? The disciples here is a neutral term. It can mean either men or women. Why does he draw them to his side with this embrace? Well, we see in verse 1, he does so as a result of the uproar that has just ceased. You see, what's happening here is Paul is planning to take his ministry work uh, into Macedonia and Greece. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21 and verse 22, it says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to go to Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Paul had it as a plan to leave from Ephesus in order that he could go into Macedonia and also to go into Achaia or Greece to do his follow-up care for the churches. But in between all of that plan, there was a riot which ensued as we looked at for the last couple of weeks. We saw that there was this riot which took place which disrupted the church tremendously. The whole town had risen up against the church. And so Paul, knowing that, okay, the uproar has ceased, I need to get back on with my travel itinerary in which I need to go and visit the churches of Macedonia and also into Corinth and then over into Jerusalem, he knew that he needed to go. But before just up and leaving without saying anything to the church, he says, this church is still recovering from what has taken place. They've been through a riot. They've been through a terrible ordeal, and I must, as their spiritual guide or as their spiritual shepherd, I must comfort them in order that they would not find themselves continually fearful as I myself go on and leave. You know, Paul was the shepherd of that church. He was one of the elders of that church. He was there for three years. And this riot took place where Gaius and Aristarchus were dragged into the theater and the believers were wondering if they were going to get killed and Paul himself wanted to go in and the other believers are saying, Paul, don't go in. We don't want you to die. And on top of that, the whole town had risen up against the church because the church was no longer giving in to the idolatrous practice of the Artemis worship. The church was fearful and they're saying, Paul, if you leave, what if the riot happens again? Or, or Paul, if you leave, how are we going to be able to go forward in this? They were fearful as to what was going to happen, finding themselves living in the fear of man through the fear of the unknown. They were discouraged. They were worried. You know, all of the emotions that individuals go through in their trials. And Paul, rather than just saying, oh, suck it up, just get over it, he calls the disciples to him side and he embraces them before he goes. He loves these people and he wants to let them know that he himself is with them. And so he hugs them. He pulls them to his side and embraces them. And this is something that we can see in our own lives. That in our love for one another, it can be shown in its simplest form in which by our presence we seek to comfort one another with a loving embrace. Now, far from romanticizing this here, this is not what is the case, but rather what is happening here is one brother loving another brother in Christ and showing them that they love them through mutual affection. 
I say mutual affection because before anyone gets ahead of themselves here, this is a, a mutual affection that is taking place. He wasn't just going up and hugging everybody and going crazy with them, but he called them to inside. And I'm sure he says, let me hug you. Let me, let me encourage you here that, that though this riot has just taken place, God has done his will through that. You know, let me call you to my side. I will embrace you and comfort you as you await uh, my return if he was going to come back at another time. You see, on three separate occasions in Paul's letters, he talks about this mutual embrace that the believers are to have for one another. On three separate occasions, he calls on the church to greet one another with a holy kiss, to greet one another with a holy kiss wherein we can show our mutual affection for one another, that we love one another, that we wish to be around one another, that we wish to encourage one another or comfort one another if the Spirit draws us to do just that. Now, before someone gets ahead of themselves once again, this was done where men greeted men with a kiss and women greeted women with a kiss, a, a holy kiss, and, and not in the perverted sense in which people might wish to lead individuals to believe in, that, in today's day, but rather it was just a welcome greeting from one another where it was a hug and there was a kiss on the cheek to show someone that you cared for them. I remember my friend Michael Wilson Woods who did that every time he met me. He said he kissed me right on the forehead, and often I'm like, oh, don't kiss me on the forehead, but Michael in his mutual affection for me as both his brother in the Lord and also a dear friend, he would kiss me to greet me. He would say hello to me in order that I would know that he loved, loved me. You see, there's a simplistic beauty in a loving embrace that we can show towards one another as believers in the Lord that breaks down barriers and comforts those who are mourning. This is something that we ought to be able to do for one another if we wish to show our love towards one another. Again, with a mutual respect for one another, not just doing it uh, flippantly and just going and hugging everyone. There often is order within that. But if we wish to show our embrace to someone, we can do so through a mutual affection towards one another. Why? How do we see this here? Well, it's here with Paul. And also, if you go to John chapter 13, we see this being displayed in the life of Jesus and his disciples. John chapter 13, verse 23 says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John the Apostle, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And in the ESV, there's a footnote which actually describes it in more detail. The, to be reclining at Jesus' side in the Greek literally translates to be reclining in the bosom of Jesus. John was laying on Christ's chest as they were reclining there in fellowship with one another. He was reclining on his Savior's chest. And you say, what is, what is John doing here with that? That seems a little bit awkward here. But no, there was this mutual respect that they had for one another. There was no shallow or superficiality in their love for one another. This was just a mutual love that they had towards one another wherein John wished to comfort the Lord or the Lord wished to comfort John whom he loved. They would just embrace one another. And again, not to pervert it or not to make it strange or not to even make too big of a deal about it, but rather just in its simplest, simplest form. If we wish to show our love for one another, it does not take a strong act. It does not take, you know, giving a bunch of money or giving a bunch of our time or giving a bunch of our resources to a brother, but rather it's just simply to say, I love you, and to hug them and to, to show that you care for your brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some might say this is cultural, and so in our day, well, it may not be so cultural. You know, you try to hug my dad, and he's going to speak, what are you doing? That's weird. Don't hug me. My dad might do that, and so we have this mutual respect for one another where if someone doesn't want us to hug by, in that way, we can still embrace them. You shake their hand and say, go glad you're here. I'm thankful that you're here, brother. Anyway, I can be praying for you, brother. That love that is just this mutual embrace that we can have towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, sometimes we think that we need to do just something so extravagant to comfort someone. 
You know, someone is, is suffering, they've lost a loved one, or, or they, uh, they, you know, they've had a tragedy in their, in their family life or in their own life, and we say, well, what am I going to say to them, or how am I going to help them, how can I comfort them in this? And we think of all of these extravagant things when all that really needs to be done is us to just simply call them to our side and to be there with them. You see, in Job's case, if we go to the Old Testament, Job's friends initially set out right mourned with him. But where they went wrong was when they tried to speak up to try to make some sense of the situation when the Lord spoke out of the whirlwind and rebuked them for it. In Job chapter 38, verse 1 and verse 2, it says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? The Lord says, Quiet! You don't know what you're talking about here. If Job needs any comfort, it is the comfort of embrace which you can give to your brother who has just found himself desolate from everything and anything in which he ever knew. Our love for one another can be as simple as a loving embrace in order that we can comfort one another. And that's what we see the Apostle Paul doing here. I'm reminded of this in my own life in a time of great tragedy for myself and Renee. When Renee and I were in between, or we were, we were uh, raising our children, and, and after Haley was born, Renee was pregnant once again, and, and uh, she was about uh, just at the latter end of her first trimester, and we found out that she suffered a miscarriage. And this was a terrible time for both her and I. We wept over it. We were terribly, terribly sad over the, the loss of our child. And so as I was going about my day and my work, I used to sell band instruments, and so I went to a place called Box Brothers, and I had a brother in the Lord who worked there. His name was Jeff Colcord, and I was telling him about what happened there, and rather than saying anything to me, he just grabbed me by the side and he hugged me, and he embraced me with a love that meant so much to me. I don't even remember anything that he said to me that day. I just know that he cared for me enough to drag me or to grab me by my, si by my side and to hug me and then to pray for me in order that I would be comforted in that terrible tragedy that Renee and I myself had faced in our own lives. And so then, really, it's as simple as this. If we wish to grow in Christ's likeness and, and if we wish to do so by love for one another, it can be as simple as a mutual embrace of affection as we see Paul doing, as we see the Lord doing with John, as we see in our own lives. We can love one another with a simple love of a mutual embrace. But still there is another example here in verse 2. In verse 2 it says, When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Again, it's just like, what is in this statement here? You say this is Paul's love for the church here, this great love for the church here. How is Paul's love shown to the church here in this particular situation? Well, it's shown in that he was exhorting them. He was exhorting the church, meaning he was teaching the word to these individuals wherever it was that he went. Again, we have this word encouragement here, which is somewhat of a general term. I think that there are other translations which probably state it better. The King James says, and after he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, the, the NIV says he spoke many words of encouragement to the people, and also the NASB says he had given them much exhortation. What Paul is, is doing here is he is exhorting the brothers and sisters in the Lord with the truth from God's Word, and that is how Paul often showed his love for the body of Christ. He would show his love through a mutual embrace, but he would also show his love to them in that he would give himself to the church with such an exclusiveness to the preaching of the Word that it just encompassed all of his life. 
He was focused on preaching the word to the church. He was focused on making sure that these individuals would be equipped with the word of God in order that they would both be able to grow up in the doctrine in which the Lord Jesus Christ himself had taught Paul and also that they would be able to escape the false teachers of their day, Paul knowing that he would not be able to be with them at every situation. You see, Paul loved the church so much that he built up the church wherever he would go through the proclamation of the word of God. He exhorted them with the Word of God. In verse 2 of chapter 20, we see he had gone through those regions, that is Macedonia and also in Achaia, and, uh, and he finally settled there in Achaia for a little while. He, he settled in Greece, it says here. He spent three months in Greece. That's just Achaia. Uh, Greece, Achaia, uh, Athens is what we call it today. And, and so Paul was there. He is going through all of these towns. Verse 2 really covers about a year and a half of Paul's ministerial life, and it's just totally enamored with the fact that he was encouraging the church wherever he went. He loved the church so much so that he made it his mission to show them his love while teaching them continuously. You see, love for one another can be in its simplest form in that we are just simply seeking to embrace one another, but it also shows itself in the exhortation of the Word of God in order that we can both equip one another to train up one another in the way of the Lord and also in order that they would be able to avoid the false teachings of their day. We're going to see an example of Paul's exhortation of the church as we look forward into the next week's passage in chapter seven or chapter 20 verse 7, where Paul preaches so long that a young man named Eutychus, you know, Paul preaches into the evening and into midnight. A young man, you know, Paul's preaching so long, he falls asleep, and he falls out of a third-story window dead because Paul was preaching so long. Was Paul boring? Probably not. Paul just preached for a long time because he wanted the church to know God's truth because he knew that they were constantly going to be con- uh, uh, conflicted by the things of this world and the things of God. And if he had the time to teach them. He was going to teach them until they fell asleep. And even if they fell asleep, he would keep on teaching because he knew that the Word was so important for them to know. In Paul's final remarks to the Ephesian elders here in Acts chapter 20, three times he reminds them of his great purpose of love towards them in preaching the Word of God to them. In chapter 20, and if you have your Bibles open, just turn with me here. In verse 18 to verse 20, he says, and when they came to him, that's the Ephesian elders, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house." Going to verse 26 and verse 27, he says, Therefore, I testify you to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then going to verse 31 and verse 32, he says, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul loved the church, and he showed that he loved Christ's church in teaching them. Just as Christ his Savior taught him the glorious truths of God's Word, so also Paul saw fit to preach to the church, to exhort the church, to teach the church, to just engage with the church in, in a, present, uh, a present sense in which he was open to their questions. He just constantly was engaging with the body of Christ, with the truth from God's Word. 
You see, Paul would write to the Corinthian church on the uh, characteristics of love, which Pastor Richard preached on a number of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Paul loved the church so much, he wanted them to not be swept away by wrongdoing, but rather to rejoice with him in the truth of God's Word. And so he exhorted them continuously. You say, because I exhort someone, I love them? Absolutely. And this is shown in the fact that to exhort someone with the truth from God's Word is to simply tell them what God has said about any given subject in order that we could seek them out to have an obedience to what God Himself has said. It's not always in the negative. It can be in the positive. But in the negative, we could say that to point someone away from the error in which they are living is the most loving thing that we could ever do for either a brother or sister in the Lord or an unbeliever. We can love them enough to tell them the truth from God's Word. To lead someone away from error or sin is the most loving thing that we can do for a brother or sister in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there have been some who have beaten individuals over the head with the Bible. You call them Bible thumpers. I'm not talking about that. But rather, a careful, respectful presentation of the truth can be an immediate way through which we can show our love towards one another. One pastor says, a sure mark of love for the brothers is the selfless, tireless, continual exhortation of the Word of God. And you say, why is this the case? Why is teaching someone the Word of God in a tireless exhortation of it showing love towards them? Well, it's twofold. It's twofold in that we know that it leads to the spiritual maturity of that individual, and it also will equip the church to guard against the false teachings of their day. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now I spill out a little of my heart to you today here and now, and also I'm sure Pastor Richard's. And Pastor Richard's and I, great love for you. It is the reason in which we spend so much time going in depth over these passages from the Word of God. It's the reason why we don't just summarize things or just come up here and preach for a few moments and then get back down and allow for something else to take place. It's the reason why we have the Word of God as central in our fellowship. We love you so very, very much. And we know that we only have a few moments of your time given the extraordinary amount of time that we have to spend in the world given the things that we often are preoccupied that when we are gathered together, we are going to do our very best to equip you by the Word of God in order that we would be able to both build you up and to also guard you against false teachings. If you ever wondered why the sermons might be a little bit longer than other churches, if you ever wonder why Bible study might go into an hour and sometimes an hour and a half, it's not just because we want to keep you away from other things. It's not just because we want to hear ourselves talk. It's because we love you so very much that we want you to know the Word of God. And we realize that during the rest of the week, you are on your own, so to speak. I know that you are never alone. The Lord is with you always, and He will certainly lead you. But it is my responsibility, and it is Pastor Richard's responsibility as shepherds of you to be watching over your soul, and we take that seriously. And we don't want to stand before the Lord someday, and the Lord says, you know, you could have spent an awful lot more time training and equipping the church when rather than that, you were just simply going about doing things that had no purpose in the eternality of things. 
You see, we have a command, Pastor Richard and I, from Scripture. You also do as well in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. For you, it is to obey your leaders and to submit to them. But for me and Pastor Richard, it is this, prom- it is this uh, clear exhortation that we are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Hebrews, again, I read it, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. We take this seriously, and this is why we give so much time to the faithful preaching of the Word of God, why we spend so much time during the week studying, why we spend so much time preparing and and then preaching it to you in the morning, in the afternoon, and Wednesday night, and whenever you want to ask us questions, we love you so dearly that we wish to exhort you with the Word of God in any way possible. Now, I say this not to commend us, but rather to instruct you why we preach and teach for the amount of time in which we do, why we spend so much time doing what we do in order that you can know our heart for you. We spill it out before you here now that that we love you, and that is why we preach the Word faithfully to you. We desire that you would be brought to maturity in Christ, and not for our benefit, but rather for yours, in order that you would be able to give glory to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we desire this for you. We, we pray that God would equip you as we teach you the Word. We, we often are talking over our sermons weekly in order that our sermons would be clear and instructive, in order that you would understand what we're saying, and it's not just some rambling that you no one can even understand. We desire spiritual maturity for you, and also we desire that the Lord would train you up in His Word because we realize that we are only stewards of this place. We are only individuals whom God for a time has brought to this place to preach His Word. We don't know when God might call us somewhere else or He may keep us here until He calls us to Himself. We don't know when that is. But for the time in which we have one another and our great love for the body of Christ, we will teach you the Word of God. But you see, this kind of love is not to be shown only by us. It's not just us that would show our love towards you to exhort you with the Word of God, but rather this is a mutual love that all of us as believers are to show towards one another. It's not just the pastors that exhort one another with the Word of God, but rather you turn to Hebrews chapter 3, and on two separate occasions the author of Hebrews encourages the church to exhort one another. He says in Hebrews 3, 12 to 13, "'Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God.'" But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but exhorting one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are to be exhorting one another. As Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 says, we are to be speaking the truth in love towards one another not just simply going about our days and and just kind of doing our own thing or concerning with ourselves, but rather getting to know one another's needs, getting to know about one another's thoughts, getting to know one another's beliefs, if it is necessary in order that we could exhort one another with the Word of God in order that all of us would grow up into maturity in Christ's likeness. And far from what other individuals might think out in the world, truth and love are not exclusive to each other. You know, we are called to speak the truth in love in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 here, but these are not exclusive terms. These terms uh, are conducive to one another to show how God is going to use the truth that we speak to one another in love or the love that we have for one another to speak to each other in truth in order that we could see one another be led to spiritual maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just sometimes we speak to one another in the truth and another times we speak to another with the love to enable them, but rather our love motivates the truth 
truth in which we give to them, and our truthfulness will motivate the love in which we have to share the truth with them. These things are conducive to each other. They are not exclusive to one another. You see, we do it because we desire that all would grow in maturity in Christ's likeness. And this is not to mean that we're going to go around and condemning one another and to say, you need to do this or you need to do that. Sure, there may be some times in which we do need to correct one another in our behavior or in our thoughts towards the Lord Jesus Christ. But as Scripture tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 into verse 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for the training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good and perfect work. It's not just that we're going to correct one another as we exhort one another. It is a training up of one another where we are edifying one another in our small groups or in our individual conversations where we are all mutually coming together to exhort one another with the Word of God, knowing that the Word of God will build us up. And we do this because we love God, we love His Word, and we love His bride, and we wish to see His bride brought to you completion. And so in two ways, we see love expressed for one another from the Apostle Paul's example is to both in a mutual embrace to encourage and also in exhorting one another with the Word of God. But finally, it is shown in the follow-up care that the individual show towards one another. It's a mutual embrace. It is a exhorting one another in the Word, and it is also a follow-up care which exists where we're not just giving data to individuals. We're not just trying to grab information from everyone in order that we can just know everything about everyone's lives, but rather in our mutual conversations with one another, with one another we hear a need and we say, okay, I know this need. Maybe I can meet this need. And I follow up with that person to show them that I have heard them and I wish to show my love for them in such a way that I am going to meet that need for them through this follow-up care. This is what we see the Apostle Paul doing. It's in verse 1 to verse 6. So we'll read it again here to remind us of it. It says, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Potter, the Berean and son of Phyrus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Again, it's just a travel itinerary of what Paul is doing. Luke's back with him, and he's saying, this is where we went. We went here, we went there, and now we're here, and we're just, you know, getting our way into Jerusalem. But what are they doing here? Is Paul just busying himself with things? What is Paul doing? What are these other believers doing with Paul? Well, they're doing some follow-up care. And this is where we must let Scripture interpret Scripture because Paul is not, or actually Luke, the author, does not tell us what the follow-up care really is. In one sense, it is, it is exhorting people with the Word of God, which we've already considered, but in an entirely different sense, as we go throughout the New Testament, we can see that this follow-up care that the Apostle Paul is doing and going from Ephesus to Macedonia, which is across the Aegean Sea, he goes to Macedonia, and then he goes to Achaia, which is in Greece, which is even further away, and then he makes his way back into Troas, which was on his way back over into Jerusalem, we see that he's not just going into all these places for no purpose, but rather he's doing some follow-up care, which we will see as we read throughout the whole Testament exactly what he is doing. Now, to do this, it's going to take some, uh, what would we call it, we would call this uh, cross-referencing. 
It's going to take some cross-referencing from particular passages of Scripture to see what Paul is busying himself with here. And rather than just telling you what he is doing, I want to show to you what Paul is doing, not only that we could have an understanding of what this follow-up care looks like, but also to give sort of a secondary issue to the uh, cohesiveness of the New Testament. You see, none of these texts are written in isolation of one another, but God, has He has formed His Word and has proclaimed His Word, it all points to a one cohesive act of God through His church, which is going to show the church in unity with one another. And so, as we wonder what Paul is doing here, we need only look to Paul's letters to see what exactly he's busying himself with. And so, again, we read that Paul was planning to go through Macedonia and then Achaia and then to Jerusalem. Jump over to me with Romans, to Romans chapter 15. Paul writes the book of Romans while he is in Achaia here in Acts chapter 20, verse 2. And he writes to the church at Romans why he himself has not gotten to them yet. He says, I'm on a busy travel itinerary right now, but I plan to get to you. But before I do that, this is why I have not gotten to you yet. Romans chapter 15, verse 22 to verse 29 says, This is the reason why I've been so often hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. This is what he's doing. This is his follow-up care. I am going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and I have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And so in Acts chapter 20, verse 1 to 2, and all the way into verse 6, we see Paul is busy going to Macedonia and into Achaia, and then he's making his way back to Jerusalem. What's he doing? Well, Paul tells the church at Rome what's he's do- what he's doing. He says, I've got to go to these churches because I've got to get the money from them to bring to the saints at Jerusalem. Now, we know that the Jerusalem church was quite poor because back in Acts chapter 11, Agabus, who was a prophet of the church there, came to the church and told them that there was going to be a brief period of famine, and that there was. And we know from both biblical record and also historical records outside of the Bible that there was a great famine in which there was a lot of poor throughout Jerusalem. They were dying because of this famine. And so Paul, knowing that the church was very poor there, and knowing that the believers outside of the church in Jerusalem throughout the Roman Empire were blessed with with much, much more than Jerusalem church was, Paul was encouraged by the Jerusalem church to take a collection from these other churches to bring to the brothers at Jerusalem in order that they would be able to care for the body of Jesus Christ. This was the follow-up care in which he was doing. It was a mutual care for one another where they were supplying needs that were necessary to build up the church, not spiritual needs, but physical needs. And so that's what Paul tells the Roman church he's doing. He says, I will come to you, but I must collect the money from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia and then bring them to Jerusalem. And so what does he do? Well, as we see in Acts chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, Luke tells us he had gone through those regions, Macedonia and Achaia, and he came to Greece for a while. 
while he was in Greece is when he wrote the book of Romans. But prior to being in Greece, while he was still in Macedonia, he wrote a letter to the church and at Corinth to say, I'm in Macedonia now, but I'm planning to come to you in a little while. When I get there, have the offering ready so that when I get there, I can take the offering and bring it to the church in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 to 4, Paul says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and to store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And then when he wrote the letter to the Corinthians the second time, he reminds them, he says, I'm in Macedonia now. I'm coming very soon. When I get there, have the money ready for me in order that we will be able to just stay there briefly and then bring it to the church in Jerusalem. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 4, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, that is, those at Jerusalem. And then in chapter 9, verse 1 to 5, he says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. And so the cohesiveness of Scripture allows for us to see that the follow-up work that Paul is doing is not merely just busying himself with nothing, but rather knowing the needs of the Jerusalem saints and his great love for the entire body of Christ, he is urging all of the churches in the kingdom of God to take up a special offering for these people in order that he would be able to bring it to them as he found himself back in Jerusalem. This was something that Paul was eager to do. Why? Because he wanted to just have all the churches do what he said? No, because he loved the church. And he knew that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so he all called on the churches to give. And then he called to the Jerusalem church and he is going to bring them the offering very, very soon. In Galatians chapter 2, when Paul went to Jerusalem, he says he met with James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, and they perceived that the grace was given to me. They gave him the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and himself, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. And so really, quite simply here, it takes a little bit of time, but as you look at this, the follow-up care is as simple as giving to the needs of others. We ought to be able to show our love for the body of Christ, not only with our words, but also with our actions, wherein if we see a brother or sister with a need and we have the ability to meet that need, we can do just that because we love them. And so this is what Paul does. The church in Jerusalem has a need, and he goes to the churches and takes up this collection from the churches. And far from the churches just saying, take, on, take the money, go, we'll get back to our fellowship, what the churches actually do to show their care even more so is they send representatives from their church to, with Paul to go to Jerusalem so that they can deliver the money by their own hand to say, we love you. 
We care about you, and this is a blessing that we wish to give from our church to yours in order that you would be able to have the food in which you need to survive. You say, who are these people here with Paul in Acts chapter 20? You've got Sopater of the Bereans, and you've got Tychicus, and Trophimus, and uh, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius, and Timothy. Who are these people here? Well, these are the people that Paul picked up from the churches as he was taking up the collection at Macedonia and in Thessalonica, where Macedonia was, and also in Corinth, and then also into Galatia, and all of the regions in which Paul himself was to collect the offering. He took some representatives from the church so that they could show their love for the church, not only by just giving money and saying, Paul, you deal with it, but they said, we'll take some time of our own lives, we'll leave our land, we'll go into Jerusalem with Paul so that we can give them the money, and then who knows, maybe even meet some more needs of the people while we find ourselves being there. And so then you have these believers gathered from all throughout the Roman Empire taking the time to care for the poor believers there in Jerusalem along with Paul bringing the money to them together. It's love. They don't need to do this. There's nothing in them or in any command of Scripture that says that they need to give the money to the Jerusalem saints. It was a simple request from the Jerusalem church that if you are able, can you supply some of our needs? They could have said, nope, not going to be able to do that. We've got a lot of important things happening in our church here. You know, you go and figure it out yourselves here. It wasn't like that. They weren't just some exclusive church. They weren't just some castle. Rather, they knew that they were a part of the kingdom of God. And so when one church was suffering, when one member was suffering, the church said, we love you and we are going to support you if we are able to do just that. You see, this has always been the case for the church. A concern for one another's needs not only was felt, but acted upon, and they often provided for one another's needs when they were able to do just that. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 to 18 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, when we come together and we ask one another how we're doing, we're not doing it to pry We're not doing it because, you know, we want to know what you're doing like the Catholic Church would do in the Middle Ages where they say, come and give confession because they wanted to know what everyone was doing in the community. We don't do it for that reason. We don't do it in order that we can gain uh, acceptance before God. We don't do it because, well, this is going to make us have some authority over an individual. We do it because in those conversations, we may hear of a need in which you have that we can in turn help you with. Often, we're not ones to ask for help. You know, it's just, I don't know why we do that. It's just, I don't like to ask for help. I'm sure many of you don't like to ask for help. But when we ask someone how that they are doing, there may come a time within our conversations, we learn of a need that that individual might have, and if we are able, we will meet that need. And why? Why do we do it? Well, I don't know. I just do it. No, we do it because we love one another. And if Christ has met our needs, and we know that he has, we also will meet the needs of the one in whom Christ gave his life for Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count one another more significant than yourselves. You say, why was follow-up care so important to these believers? Why collect all this money? Why travel all over the Roman world and then head to Jerusalem and to face persecution along the way? In verse 3 it says, uh, I think it's verse 3, yes, it says in verse tw- chapter 20 that Paul spent three months in Greece and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. When Paul knew that his life was going to be at stake, this plot against the Jews, probably what was going to happen was 
During these days, it was the days of the Passover, and so they were making their way over into Jerusalem, and there would be a lot of pilgrims from all over the known world to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, as it says here. And so what was going to happen was there was this plot, and the Jews, what they were going to do is they were going to find Paul on this ship setting sail for Syria, which was the ship that you would take to go into Jerusalem. You go through Syria, and then you make your way into Jerusalem. And what they were doing probably is the case is they were just going to toss Paul overboard. He'd be lost at sea, and no one would know what was going to happen to them. And so Paul says, I've got to get this money to the Jews in Jerusalem, the believing Jews in Jerusalem. How am I going to get there to them? People want to kill me on this boat. Should I just wing it and just go on the boat? No, I probably shouldn't do that. I'll probably die. Let me go over to Macedonia. Let me go way out of my way to Macedonia. And then I'm going to go back over into another town in which I can enter from the other seaport, which is north of the uh, Aegean coast where Syria was. He goes north and he lands at Troas and he stays for a time there. He says, I'll go there. He takes all of this time. Why? Why would he do such a thing as this? Well, because he loved the church. And really, what was most important to him was his love for his Savior. We don't just love each other for the sake of loving one another. We love because Christ first loved us. And in our great love for our Savior, Jesus Christ, if Jesus saw fit enough to die for these, purchasing them through his own blood, and at the very least, Paul says, I can go out of my way a little bit for them. I can know their need, And I cannot just know that they have a need, but I will meet that need and I will go and I will bring this aid to them by any means necessary. Paul loved them. Paul loved his brothers and sisters. And so also do we love one another. And it's so simple for us to showcase our love towards one another. And we ought to do this because Christ commanded us for this. John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. Again, we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And you say, how so? Is it hard? Probably. You know, it's not easy for us to do. But can it be done? Absolutely. And as we see Paul imitating Christ, and as we are called to imitate Paul as Paul imitates Christ, we know that we can love one another through a mutual embrace, through exhorting, exhorting one another with God's Word, and also of meeting one another's physical needs. Now, I want us to notice one final thing about this passage here, which I think is very important both to the church at large and also even to our own fellowship. I want us to notice this about this passage here, this way of application of of how, how Paul goes about showing his love for the body of Christ. What he does here is he does not love the church from afar, but rather he goes to them. He makes himself present in their lives by any means necessary. This is his time, this is his energy, this is his resources, this is by any means necessary, he sees fit that he is going to love the church with his presence. Not, oh, Paul's here, let's grace, he's graced us with his presence. Not in that sense, but rather he is there. And as he is there, he can know their needs, he can embrace them, and he can exhort them in a way in which he could not do by letter, and he could not do by email, because email didn't even exist back then. He needed to be there presently with those individuals. And I know that he did this because this was how he saw Christ, his Savior, love him. Christ doesn't love us from afar. Far be it from that. Christ does not love us from afar, but rather Christ loves us personally. 
He loves us personally, and He is so close to us that He lives within each and every one of us. As He has said to the believers, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Christ loves us not from afar. He's not a distant Savior. He's not a distant God who has said, well, let them just figure it out themselves. But rather, He loves us personally, and He is present. He Himself is personally present with us to show His love to us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 11 shows this just so beautifully to show how our Savior loved us presently. It says in verse 1 of chapter 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant of yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How are we to do this? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, Christ showed his love for us. He demonstrated his love for us, not only that he died for us, but that he took on human flesh. Christ was among us, God with us. He's not a distant God who loves us from afar and says, oh, you've got, it, you've got it figured out over there. You just go on and you keep on doing well there. No, He came and took on our own flesh in order that He could be our sinless, spotless, eternal substitutionary sacrifice to save us from our sins. And on top of that, even as He ascended up to the Father to reign on His rightful throne, He has not left us alone, but rather through the Spirit of God, He lives in and through each and every one of us. You see, Jesus does not love the church from a distance, but is present with his bride. So also was it for Paul, in their great love for the church, they made themselves available to one another. They were present with the church. You see, Paul was, gave himself so much for the sake of the church. This was his joy in doing, because in doing it brought glory to God and growth to the church. Two examples of Paul's just desiring to not love the church from afar, but to care of our own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. When he wrote to the Roman church about how he desired to be present with them, he says in Romans 1, 8 to 13, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the Gentiles. You see, Paul was present with the church, devoting much time and energy to the brothers and sisters in the Lord. With the Ephesians, though he needed to go, 
He needed to go. He needed to fulfill the will of God in his life. He needed to go and collect the offering for the saints. He still stuck behind for a little while longer to love the church with a mutual embrace where he could hug them and to show his support for them. You see, Paul loved the church so much so that he didn't want to just keep writing individuals' letters, but rather he wanted to be with them in person. And so he went into Macedonia and to Achaia and into Troas and into all of these other regions in order that he could encourage the church presently. And in his follow-up care for the church, he didn't want to just send the money on a mule and say, you know, go on and find the church at Jerusalem. He wanted to bring it to them personally because he wanted to show his great love for them. Now, just as Christ loves the church and just as Paul loved the church, though Christ's love for the church is not the same way in which we can love the church, Christ is omnipresent. He can be with the church wherever they are gathered. For our sake, while we cannot be omnipresent, we should at very least make ourselves present within the local body of Christ in which we participate in fellowship with. See, there's this trend in the church today that has taken over really much of the evangelical church, especially on account of the pandemic which took place. There's a trend in our world which says everything is digital. In the world, they say, well, I want to send send someone a card, I'll send them an e-card. Or I want to have someone teach me something, or I want to talk to someone, I'll talk to them over Zoom. Or if I want to send someone some money, I can send it through a payment app, Zelle or PayPal or whatever one that you might want to use. It's just this instantaneous, impersonal fellowship that is happening where people are sharing themselves with one another, but not in the presence of one another. You know, it's this digital thing which says, if I want to digitally support, or if I want to support one another, I'll do it digital. I'll send an e-card. If a brother is sick or a brother's in the hospital, I'll send them an e-card. They'll get that. And, you know, that's my way of showing my love for them. I'm too busy to go to them otherwise. Or, or I want to teach someone something, and, and so I'll, I'll call them over Zoom, or I'll call them on the phone, and I'll talk to them about that. Or, or maybe if I want to send them some money, well, I'll just send them some money, and, and then they can go along their way. Now, this cannot be so for the church. The church has never, never, ever been able to flourish in some sort of an impersonal fellowship in the world in which they live. It cannot. The world hates the church. And so what we must see from the example of Christ and the example of Paul is that while many people have used the pandemic to shift to some sort of a digital church, that must not be the case for us here at First Baptist Church of Hollywood. It cannot be. We cannot love one another over the internet. It just cannot happen. cannot happen. Now, I realize that some are incapable of coming to fellowship due to circumstances outside of their own doing, or, you know, they're homebound. You can't come. But if you can come, make every effort to come to our fellowship. Again, not just to fill a seat, not just so that you can be here, but rather that you can love your brothers and sisters, and that we can love on you in order that we would bring the utmost glory to our great God who alone is worthy of all praise. You see, the love that believers show towards one another was never intended to be lived out digitally. In fact, it cannot be lived out digitally. And if you find yourself just always going to uh, e-church, whatever they want to call it, out of sheer convenience, you are disregarding the command of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and verse 25, which says we are to not neglect the meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I know during the pandemic, there was a health issue, a health risk, which said we cannot be coming about and gathering. And that was well that we were wise in that. But we've moved past that. And what is the trend that we see often happening here is out of sheer convenience, 
we just are going to just watch from home, or, or we're just not going to come out when the church is gathered because I can just conveniently watch it at my home. And, and now I'm not uh, condemning anyone. I'm not you know, discrediting anyone. I realize that we have all of our things that we are doing in our lives. But if we are just saying out of sheer convenience, I'm just going to consume without giving anything back to the body of Christ, we are misunderstanding the command that Christ has given to us to love one another. It is a love that is a present love in which if one of the body is suffering, we don't need to just write you a little note over the, over the email. We can actually hug on you and love on you and tell you that we care for you. And in exhorting you, you can't just turn on and turn off what you have that, that is being preached here. You know, if you're watching at home, you can turn me off just as easily as you turned me on. And that's not right for us to do that. Now, maybe I'm boring you and maybe you can do that if you choose to do that. But in the presence of one another, we have this opportunity to care for one another. If you have a suggestion to me or suggestion to Pastor Richard or anyone, you can come to me and talk about that. And then we can work together with that rather than just out of convenience, just turning off the TV or turning off the live stream in which we have. You see, I posed this question at the beginning for all of us here today. How do we as a believer grow in Christ's likeness? Well, it is clear if we wish to grow in Christ's likeness, it is through love for the church. And we cannot love one another from afar as much as we would like to. As much as we would love to be able to just love one another from afar and stay in our safe little box, in our safe little place, we cannot do that any longer. As we saw last week, the world hates us. It absolutely hates us. It hates God, and therefore it's going to hate God's church. As Christ's church, we must love one another. This is all we have in this world. We are all that we have in this world. We have, we have our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has united us to one another. And if we wish to show our love for one another, I'm not saying that we can't do it apart from the gathered fellowship of the church, but what I'm saying it is that we can do it most effectively when we are gathered together as the body of Christ. We can embrace one another when we are gathered. We can exhort one another when we are gathered. We can give to the mutual needs of one another when we are gathered in a far more significant way than we can do if we do this from afar. Now, I say this again, not so much to just have us come to church for the sake of coming to church. Far be it from that. No one must come to church out of obligation. If you do, you are coming for the wrong reasons. We come to church to worship God and to live out the command to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we can do that most effectively when we are gathered together in fellowship. And in doing this, if we wish to grow in Christ's likeness, when we gather as the church and love Christ's church, we will grow in Christ's likeness. Do we not want this? I know I want it. I want it for you as bad as I want it for myself because we know that this is God's plan for us as His people to be conformed to the image of His Son. Now, there's not just one way in which He conforms us to the image of His Son. Christ's love, Christ's love far exudes just simply life for the church, but this is one dominant characteristic of Christ's characteristic, characteristic love for the church. And so if we wish to be like Christ, we must love Christ's church. And again, we embrace one another, we exhort one another, and we just meet the needs of one another. And we do it presently with one another. Church, I know that we can do this. I long for this. And I know that we're doing wonderfully at this. But there are some times in which we must examine our lives and examine our, our, our heart for why we're doing whatever it is that we are doing. And if we find that we are doing this out of obligation or we're doing this because someone told me to do this, 
we need to re-examine ourselves in this. We need to re-examine our motivation behind this. Our love for one another goes far deeper than simply just Christ saying, love one another as I have loved you. Rather, we have the mind of Christ. And as we have the mind of Christ and grow in Christ's likeness, Christ doesn't have to be told to love the church. He loves the church. So also will it be for us. We don't need to be told to love the church. We will simply love the body of Christ as Christ has first loved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do bless your name for your glorious truth that we have been able to come and to consider both here in the afternoon service and also in the morning. And and God, we just are so privileged for the fellowship that we have here. So thankful for every single individual here who who loves the fellowship and and, uh, just is always presently uh, coming here and and, uh, worshiping with one another and and encouraging one another. And, And Lord, I pray that this challenge that I put before individuals who who may be finding themselves just even watching online out of sheer convenience would be taken to heart, challenging one another. I'm not, I'm not trying to condemn anyone, and, I, and, and Lord, I pray that, that you would uh, reveal my heart to individuals as, as, uh, as we seek to love the body of Christ and I seek to love the body of Christ. Lord, that we would challenge one another to, 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 to be present in each other's lives, Lord, of, of loving one another as you have shown us through the life of Paul and through the life of your church, Lord, that, that we would not just be talking the talk, but rather walking the walk as your word calls for us. And so, Lord, for those who often watch online and, and, and maybe because they are homebound, Lord, may they reach out to us so that we can come and visit them, so that we can be present with them when they are not able to be present with us. And, and those who may just be watching out of sheer convenience, online. Lord, may they impart their presence here in order that our fellowship would be all the more sweet, where we can worship you together in both spirit and truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.